Yo, what's up, everyone? I hope you all enjoyed my previous guest, Dr. Eben Alexander, where he talked about his near-death and out-of-body experience. And what a perfect guest to follow right after him. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Dean Radin. Dean Radin is chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Uh, for three decades, he has been engaged in frontier research on the nature of consciousness. He was featured in a New York Times Magazine article and has appeared on dozens of television shows ranging from BBC's Horizon and PBS's Closer to Truth to Oprah and Larry King Live. He has given over 350 interviews and talks. He's the author or co-author of over 250 technical and popular articles, three dozen book chapters, and three books including The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, and Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic ability. So Dean, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Awesome. You know, but before we get into your book, um, and since this is your first time on the show, I'd like to hear more of your personal story. So who's Dean Radin? Were you born into like a religious home or were you a skeptic growing up? And like, did you always want to be a scientist? And what got you interested in the paranormal and psychic phenomena? So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you asked about ten questions, all of which, <laughs> all of which can can go on for hours. Yeah, I'll give you the short version. Cool. Uh, I grew up in an artistic family. Uh, my parents are still alive; they're in their their mid nineties now. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, my father was a sculptor and a fine artist for most of his life, but he also had uh, five university degrees Whoa. in uh, English and philosophy and law. And that taught me as a very early child that uh, the most important thing you can do was to keep learning. So that was that was my model. Uh, so my brother, I have one brother who's uh, older and he's a dentist. Uh, he expressed his artistic interests by being a drama coach for the local high school in his uh, hometown for 20 years. And he, he was paying for a year. To do that, and he did it uh, basically because he he loved it. Hmm. Uh, so, being from an artistic family, my original career track uh, was uh, con- as con- concert violinist. Nice. Uh, this was not uh, something that I chose necessarily because I started when I was five years old, and what what do kids know? Uh, but I continued for the next 20 years and assumed for most of that time that I would end up being a professional violinist. And about the last 10 years or so uh, while I was playing, I, I played professionally in the sense that I was played to do various gigs and orchestras and chamber orchestras and quartets and that sort of thing. So it was only quite a bit later and when I was in college already that I began to realize that I was also interested in other topics, um, in particular engineering because I like to figure out how things worked. Mm. And I fortunately had some facility in mathematics so engineering and physics came easy to me. And as I went through college that to make a living as an engineer or scientist was much, much easier than trying to make a living as a musician. And so I decided to switch, basically. I switched from a a career in music to a career in in science or engineering. And then in graduate school, uh, I I got my master's in electrical engineering and decided I didn't actually want to be an engineer. So I switched to psychology 
uh, and got my PhD in psychology. So the, these switches from music to engineering to psychology sound like dramatic changes, but it just reflects that I've always been interested in everything. Right. Uh, so where does, where does the interest in parapsychology come from? Uh, I'm not entirely sure because uh, <laughs> I grew up in a family that is agnostic. Uh, we, we come from a Jewish background, but uh, religion never played any role in our lives and don't to this day. Uh, it doesn't make us atheists. As I right. said, it's more that we, we just don't think about it very much. It wasn't a part of our lives. Uh, so that it wasn't reading about uh, miracles in the Bible or the Torah that yeah. uh, led to this interest. I think more it was that I read an enormous amount when I was a kid on fairy tales, on science fiction, on mythology, and on the uh, tales of the ancient mystic masters of the East, hmm. those kinds of stories. And I've probably read hundreds and hundreds of books. Right. And when I got older, I started reading books about science and mathematics. And the thing which struck me pretty soon was you have all of this rich scholarly stories about uh, various capacities of the, of the mind. Some of them are cast in terms of uh, pure fantasy. Uh, but if you look carefully at, uh, at stories of fairy tales, most of the times there's their underlying stories to the fairy tale. They're, they're messages, morality right. tales, and sometimes other tales. And almost all of them assume that something like magic is real. Right. This is also true in science fiction. You see it again and again that, that psychic ability becomes a plot line and is just assumed to be true in science right. fiction. But it is never mentioned otherwise in a standard academic career. Right. Never heard it mentioned anywhere in engineering or in psychology. And the only proviso there was that occasionally you'd see it in a textbook, like a psychology textbook, and it's completely dismissed. Right. As though you know, only superstitious ancient people believed in such things. Mm. To my surprise, later on, I also learned that even within religious scholarship, so like in the academic world where people study religion, most of them assume that the stories which provide the power of religion, namely supernatural events, yeah. didn't really occur. Right, there, right. there were superstitions and we just interpret them differently because we're modern and sophisticated. So basically nobody in the academic world was taking seriously the possibility that some of those stories were actually based on something real. Mm -hmm. And I just felt that that was odd because okay. when you have human experiences reported throughout history uh, that are independent of culture, independent of educational achievement, and you find that uh, the majority of the population believes in psychic phenomena as a result of either their experience or experience of somebody that they trust, well then you would think that if half the population believes in something that it would be studied in the academic world right. and it is not. So that was an important clue for me because when that happens you have an enormous amount of popular interest. You have nobody in the academic world studying it seriously. It means that there's a taboo. And so the taboo in this case is predicated very strongly on the way that the Western world has evolved after the Enlightenment. Right. Mainly a split by Descartes and others, that uh, things having to do with the mind could be handled by the church, and things having to do with the physical world 
are handled by science, and the and the two do not talk to each other. Right, they have right. separate domains, and so issues about consciousness, about the capacities of consciousness, were simply not part of the scientific discourse. Right. And that is true to this day. There's right. probably a dozen universities in the world, most of them in the UK, uh, where it is okay to study uh, psi phenomena. Right, right. So, I mean, just as you were mentioning earlier on how you grew up in a agnostic home, even though you probably wouldn't label yourself an atheist, were you a believer in, in psi phenomena as you were reading some of the literature, or were you just like open, even though you're like, or were you like on the fence about these things? I was skeptical. Oh, you were skeptical. I, I was okay. skeptical, but open at the same time. Okay. And, gotcha. and this, and, and it remains to this day, even though I've done many experiments on these phenomena, you have to be skeptical if you're sure. a scientist. Sure. The moment you simply collapse into believing something without any evidence or proof, uh, well, then you're not doing science anymore. So right. I'm, I remain skeptical. Okay. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about your, your latest book, which is called Supernormal uh, Science, Yoga, and Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities. And, and I loved it. You know, it was a very informative book. You, you shared a lot of experiments in there, and I, I appreciate the jokes you threw, in and, you, know, you threw in there too. But what made you write the book? Well, the pre previous two books were... Uh, the first book was about uh, how do we evaluate evidence, a scientific perspective. And the second book was more or less about the physics involved. Okay. This book, I decided to take advantage of the fact that uh, around the world now, uh, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people are doing meditation and yoga. Right. And very few know what the origins of yoga was about. Right. So... I decided that it would be interesting to write a book that talks about the background of classical yoga, right. as described by Patanjali a thousand years ago, and to point out that in the, the classic book of yoga, that there's one of the third portions of this book, four, it's like four little books in a row, the third portion of the book is all about the special powers that come about as a result of disciplined meditative practice. Okay. So I, I know from speaking to a lot of my friends who do yoga that they have no idea about this. Right, they don't right. know that doing yoga can lead to such abilities. So part of the book was to reach people who are interested in, in yoga and meditation and to simply let them know that the original tradition about yoga took for granted that there are special abilities that can be tapped by uh, doing a disciplined practice. So that was the motivation for it. Okay. Well, yeah, so I guess we could get into that. So, I mean, is it possible for us to, to have, you know, quote-unquote superpowers like those in science fiction and in comic books? Like, I mean, there is this fascination that we have. I mean, we, I just saw Captain America, you know, last week, and then Batman versus Superman. So, like, we're just really into this whole thing with, with flying and, and telepathy and all these things. So, of course, there's a, there could be a question of degree, you know, but in your opinion, you know, do we have the ability to have powers um, that we see in science fiction and in comic books? Well, in principle, yes. Okay, in principle. In practice, is an entirely different matter. Sure, sure. So when you look at in the historical literature on, on big effects, things like levitation and very strong macroscopic psychokinesis, that sort of thing. There are stories 
of, of people who are able to do these things. Uh, it's very difficult in a story to tell whether it's true or not. Uh, but in the case of levitation, for example, a number of the Catholic saints became saints as a result of not just a couple of people who saw the saints levitating while praying, typically, but in a few cases, hundreds of people swearing under oath, uh, including highly placed officials at the time, right. uh, that some people, especially like um, St. Joseph of Cupertino, Right. Uh, was said to have been there are thousands levitated. of witnesses yeah yeah for for many many years yeah. and so the, the catholic church of course when they decide to or at least start to investigate whether somebody should become a saint they have the office of the devil's advocate which acts <laughs> professionally as skeptics to make sure that they're not going to accidentally make somebody a saint who doesn't deserve it and so they very severely checked with the witnesses and were convinced that while they didn't know what was happening, they didn't know how it happened other than calling it divine, right. that occasionally it happens. Hmm. So in principle, I think some of the superhero type uh, abilities might be true, but because we don't have access to those people, you know, the, the people who might have those actual abilities, uh, they can see a scientist coming from a mile away, and they just they just run away. Sure. They, you know, and if you think about it, if you had some kind of a superpower, would you want to become known for right. that superpower? And the answer for any reasonable person is absolutely not. Hmm. You would be hounded by the media immediately. You would become a target for all kinds of, of people with nasty intentions. It would not be very pleasant. Hmm. So. That's besides the prohibition within the yogic lore, not just yoga, but most esoteric training systems say that if you develop these special abilities, you shall not demonstrate it. The reason you don't demonstrate it is because it, uh, demonstrating power will inflame the ego, and then you become Darth Vader. Right. It's yeah. the, it, this is a mythological story that happens again and again, that the falling to the dark side happens because people are relatively weak, and power is seductive. Hmm. So you, you just don't demonstrate it. Right, right. So then what do, what do I do as a scientist? I want to study these things, but there's so few people around who have the ability that we're forced to study people who may or may not even make special claims. Fortunately, the phenomena that we're studying is amenable to what we can do in the laboratory. And it's also fortunate that enough people have enough ability to do simple psychic tasks that we can actually show these effects in the laboratory even without having to go to anybody who could be possibly thought of as having any superpowers. These are just ordinary people. Right, right. So so why would you, you know, even in your, your book, your, the title itself, you would call it supernormal. Uh, why would you use that word supernormal rather than the, the common word a lot of religious people use as supernatural? Supernatural has the connotation of divine. Okay. That it's, it is beyond the natural world. And so if it's beyond the natural world, it must be due to one or more gods. Right. Whereas supernormal is a term that, that is used to indicate that it is normal. It's, it's part of the natural world and it's totally normal, except it's more so. Mm. In the same sense that I can run, but there's no way in the world I can, I can beat an Olympic right. champion. <laughs> right. So the Olympic champion as compared to me is a super 
normal runner. Right, right. So in other words, you're basically saying that everyone has these abilities to some degree, just some people are more advanced in that sense, like in sports, right? Like, so someone runs, everyone can run, but not everyone can run really fast or play basketball as good as Michael Jordan or something. Um, But they can be developed, in your opinion? Well, some people have natural talents or various things. Uh, They can typically, if the talent matches what they're trying to learn, they can learn very quickly and achieve very high levels of performance very, very mm-hmm. without much trouble, without much difficulty. Uh, anybody in principle can learn how to play tennis, but unless you have a talent for it, you're never going to get very good. Right. And it, and it doesn't matter how much you practice. But mm-hmm. the same could be said for uh, tasks like meditation. Some people start to meditate and they reach very rarefied states very quickly. Right. Others can meditate their entire lifetime and just manage to calm down and not achieve anything special mentally. So it, it is, uh, it's true that, the, that if somebody has talent, they're going to achieve a lot. If they don't have talent, they can do something, but it may not amount to very much. Okay, okay. Now, you know, just getting into this whole discussion, um, I know just even looking online and, and uh, reading atheist books and skeptic books and all that stuff, like a lot of this stuff is considered, it's woo-woo stuff to a lot of people, you know, but you had the opportunity to travel throughout India and you noticed a big difference between, you know, the Western culture with, with psychic phenomena. So why the contrast between the two cultures, do you think? India has, has always had a much more uh, loose uh, sense, I think, of the way that the world is stuck together. The culture has has accepted psychic and other uh, phenomena as part of some of the religions, a part of the culture for thousands of years. Uh, by contrast, and the same probably is true of China and Asia in general. Asia is more open to these kinds of things than the Western world. Uh, you take um, many places in Europe, certainly in the United States and the UK, uh, there is a underwriting sense, uh, especially within the scientific community, that those kinds of concepts are all superstition. And there's a mistaken belief that if psychic phenomena are true, it means that everything else that we know is false. I hear this all the time from academics say, well, that experiment can't possibly be true because it means we'd have to throw away all the textbooks and start over again. <laughs> and that's just an expression of fear. Right. And, and it's, it's an illegitimate way of thinking about things because within any existing scientific discipline, a lot of the information is correct. Right. A lot of it will be changed over time because textbooks are constantly revised as new things are learned. But there's nothing fundamentally wrong about most scientific disciplines including physics, including psychology, including neuroscience. So what psychic phenomena does is challenge what amounts to the metaphysics of science, Mm. not not within disciplines. And what I mean by the metaphysics is what a philosopher would use, that term. It's the underlying assumptions on which science science sits. Mm. Like where where does the whole enterprise of science rest upon? So from the Enlightenment until today in Western science, science anywhere in the world now, because it's all basically the same, Hmm. science assumes that if you think of 
disciplines in science. There are dozens of disciplines, but if you think of it in simplistic terms, all of science is could be shaped like a pyramid, and the bottom of the pyramid is physics. And physics assumes, up until recently, that the fundamentals of the universe are space, time, matter, and energy. From that, you can bump up one level in the hierarchy to, to chemistry, and then to biology, and then to psychology, and somewhere near the top of that pyramid is consciousness, is awareness. Yeah. So that's what I just described as a structure is a metaphysical assumption. Right. It makes the assumption that everything is sitting on matter and energy. And also that space and time are absolutes. Yeah. But fortunately science marches on and we've known for over a century now, or coming up on a century, that from quantum mechanics and relativity that space and time are flexible and relationships and matter and energy are relationships as well. And when you think about what quantum mechanics describes about reality, it basically is in terms of information, not matter and energy. So all of the assumptions that most scientists rest upon that assume that this is the way that reality works is already wrong. It's wrong because of quantum mechanics. Right. But I would suggest that it's, it's even worse than that, that at the bottom of this pyramid, we need a new slice. And the new slice I would propose is consciousness itself. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because for over 2,000 years, starting with the, the Greek philosophers, the question has always been, what is the relationship between the mind and the body? This mind-body problem. And you can right. see it in physics, you see it in psychology. In every domain that starts thinking about the difference between an inner world and the outer world, nobody has gone anywhere near close to understanding how that works. So when you end up with a paradox that lasts a long time, or an unsolved question, one of the things that it suggests is that maybe our starting assumptions weren't right in the first place. So let's simply make a new assumption. This, by the way, is exactly how Einstein developed his theories. He said, well, the old stuff wasn't working. Let's, let's try a new idea. So the new idea is let's simply assume that consciousness is fundamental, simply part of the fabric of reality, uh, in exactly the same way that electrons are. We don't know where they come from, but it's just there somehow. So consciousness is a fundamental aspect of reality. It would not exist in space-time. Because if it's more fundamental in physics, in physics is where space and time and matter and energy arise. So consciousness has to be before that. Right. And it's the, the bottom of this knowledge pyramid. And if that were true, this, this new model that I'm presenting, which is actually not, uh, then psychic experience, mystical experience, superheroes, all that stuff becomes perfectly possible and in some of these, some of the phenomena, like telepathy and so on, you would predict that these things had to occur occasionally. And so it takes an existing scientific paradigm which finds psychic phenomena as extremely anomalous to the point where skeptics say that this is impossible right. and cast it in a new light where all of science remains exactly the way it was before except a new metaphysical underpinning that suddenly all of these phenomena make sense. Right, right, right. So let's talk about some of the, the phenomena like telepathy and, and clairvoyance and psychokinesis. So, so are those things real? Like, how did you discover that they're real? Well, 
real in science means that you do an experiment that is controlled. Uh, you understand the conditions under which it's being done. You have a way of excluding chance and mundane explanations for the results. And then you have other people uh, replicate the experiment and see if they get the same result. So if you get enough independent replications that are getting about the same result and there's some confidence that the design is such that you're not fooling yourself by, uh, by making a mistake, that leads to confidence that the effect that you're looking at is real. So for telepathy, that has been the case now for probably 30 years, that there's enough repeated, independently repeated experiments where there are no known loopholes in the experiments, uh, that when you add up all of the evidence, it's very clear that, from, that telepathy exists. Okay. So, like these are experiments that you've done and not just read about. Right. For, for every category of psychic phenomena I've participated in, in some cases started um, classes of experiments. Nice. So I've, I've looked at all of them uh, in laboratory contexts nice. and have been convinced basically by the data. Now remember, I came at this as a skeptic. Right. I, didn't, I didn't know beforehand or have a belief beforehand that there was true or not true, but I was very curious about it because I realized that if, if you could show that any of these phenomena were true, as best as science can tell anything is true, that means that something very important has been overlooked mm -hmm. by by the rest of science. And right. so that that's captured my attention very early on and it has remained so because I'm now convinced with the evidence that some of these phenomena really are true. Right, right. I mean, was there any particular experiment that you've done that was like, bam, no, this is real? Because you know what I'm saying? Like, there, I'm, I'm sure there could have been times where you might have done experiments and you still have some doubts creeping in. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. then, was there any like particular one that stands out that you're just like, boom, this this convinced me? No, actually, when if you do a single experiment, a new experiment on something, and you get an amazingly good result, mm -hmm. the very first reaction I have to that is, this has got to be wrong. Right. <laughs> this, right. this is just too good. This is too easy. <laughs> it can't possibly be that good. Yeah. So it's it's not a single experiment. It's the idea of doing multiple experiments which gains, gives me confidence that there's something real, mm -hmm. but what really does it is when I know that an independent colleague does the same experiment and they get the, the same, same result. Results, right. That's what convinces me. So it's okay. not my work. I mean, because I, I, I'm always suspicious about myself. <laughs> right, these right. things. So you have to be. It's when somebody else finds it too. Right, right. Understandable. You know. So, I mean, in regards to these abilities, uh, in a sense, like in a sense, we're evolving in the sense of like the literature that I'm reading now as we're talking more about you know, quantum physics and consciousness and even, you know, quantum physicists talking about these things. But in another sense, uh, we probably have devolved where these abilities were probably more common back in the day and in other countries, you know. So why do you think that's the case? Like, or in other words, like has technology, you know, in our in our century played a, a factor in that, the, the whole devolving part? I think for several reasons. For one because we have cell phones, we don't need telepathy anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, because we have television, we don't need clairvoyance anymore. Or right. more more likely with Skype, we don't need it. Yeah. Um, so technology is, is 
replacing what used to be the only way of doing various kinds of communication. Right. Uh, and in chemistry and engineering, we have the ability to mold the world in increasingly sophisticated ways. So things like psychokinesis are not necessary either. In fact, there are very few things that we can't do that used to only be possible through psychic means. Right. And so the, the one remaining phenomenon is precognition. Right. Right. We, we can forecast the future, but uh, not in the same way that you can with uh, precognitive vision. So it's like back then they had no choice. <laughs> yeah, there was no choice, and if you, even in indigenous societies today, if there's, uh, if you don't have any technology and you really desperately need to get in contact with somebody, uh, they use ancient methods, and the methods seem to work. Yeah. So, it's hard, very hard to test that in the laboratory because, for one thing, indigenous peoples don't trust science and they don't like it very much. And also because in order for it to work with any degree of reliability, you need life and death situations. Right. And you can't do that in the laboratory. You can only simulate it to a mild extent. So mm -hmm. I think so part of the reason is uh, that we don't need the, to express these phenomena anymore. But the other reason is that we live in a, a world in the past 20 years or so that is unlike, as far as we can tell, anything that has ever been exposed to, namely... Uh, a saturated electromagnetic spectrum, uh, all kinds of new chemicals and toxins and foods and all sorts of environmental changes that that simply were not even in existence a hundred years ago, certainly not two hundred years ago. So humanity on Earth is relatively short compared to the life of the Earth, uh, but humans living under dream levels of technology now that saturate all of our lives all the time, this is really new. Yeah. And I suspect, given the little that we know about the influence of electromagnetics and other man-made uh, energetics, that they reduce our sensitivity. Right. In the same way that if you're trying to meditate and there's somebody outside blowing their horn in their car, <laughs> it's just a Difficult. Well, it's the same idea, except that there are other kinds of things that are impinging on us all the time. Right, right. No, I, I get that. You know, so I mean, if you don't mind me asking, like, have you had any, you know, personal experiences that you would consider psychic phenomena? Yeah, some. Uh, nothing more dramatic than a lot of other people sure. have had. Uh, occasional precognitive dreams. Uh, it's probably the most frequent way that I experience these things. Uh, a few couple of cases of synchronicities that were mind-blowing synchronicities. Uh, I usually do pretty well in the experiments that I set up. And in many ways, those are more convincing to me, even though they're, they're much smaller in magnitude, typically, because they know the conditions sure. under which the experiment was done. Whereas if you have some spontaneous thing occur in in real life, uncontrolled everyday life, you're never quite sure whether it's a coincidence or whether it's something real. Sure, sure. Okay. You know, like, well, let's talk about yoga for now. Um, like in the West, right, it's like it's a very, yoga is very trendy these days, you know. So like I remember back in the day when I was a kid, um, I remembered that yoga was considered demonic you know, by a lot of my, my Christian friends that I would be around with, you know, so, mm -hmm. but a lot of people these days, they're doing it, even in churches, you know, there's some churches yeah. that actually do yoga now, 
Uh, you look on Instagram and YouTube, you'll see people doing these funky poses in their homes or on a, the beach during a sunset. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's known for like the physical fitness uh, through stretching, flexibility and mental fitness through meditation. But, you know, for thousands of years, um, what's what's the essential goal of yoga? The essential goal was liberation. So what we would call now uh, self-realization or enlightenment. Okay. And what, what that means is that you reach a stage of realization that you and the universe are one. Right. And of course, every religious tradition says a similar thing in different ways. Uh, and yoga is, is also has this notion that there is no difference between you, meaning your consciousness, and the universe, the whole universe. So... When, when we're thinking just in everyday terms, that kind of statement sounds crazy. Yeah. You know, how do you mean that you and the universe are the same thing? Well, that is the realization, though, that in certain states of mind, or actually meditative states, that realization is known directly. It's, mm-hmm. it's, and it's directly in a sense that if you experience that kind of, of phenomenon, which people would call a mystical experience or in yoga, a samadhi experience, it is not a matter of intellectually understanding it or rationally figuring it out. It is a certain knowledge. And when it happens, no one can convince you that it did not happen. Mm. It's that level of certainty. Okay. So that's, that's the goal in yoga is to achieve that level of awareness. And part of it, at least traditionally, was also that life consists of suffering. Like you, you, as long as you're alive, you're not going to be able to escape suffering, either physically, emotionally, some other way. That's simply built into the structure of being on a living organism. So, how can you escape suffering without dying? This is one of the underlying ideas here that if you become realized, self realized to the point where you understand that you and the universe are the same, your body might still suffer. Might occasion might also have emotional suffering, but there's a deeper part of you which recognizes that you and the universe are the same, and that part doesn't suffer because that part actually doesn't even exist in space time. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the goal of yoga, and as you as you correctly pointed out, that a lot of yoga is performed as a kind of a semi spiritual aerobics. Right. Right. Without without any indication at all of what the actual goal is. So like aside from, you know, the sense of uh, self-awareness where you're achieving these, you know, these states of insight, etc., you know, uh, what are some other benefits that people can get from yoga and meditation aside from that? You mean besides the superpowers? Um, I guess so, but just like anything for, for anyone just interested in yoga who just has this very uh, shallow understanding of like, oh, just people doing funky poses, you know? Right. Like, is there health benefits or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, if you look at the literature on, especially in meditation research, there's a smaller literature on yoga, but, but that, there's a literature there too. Okay. So this is mostly in clinical medicine research. Uh, as an editor of a journal, I get, you wouldn't believe how many articles I get submitted to our journal on testing various forms of mindfulness meditation, typically, uh, for every kind of ailment you can imagine, uh, mental problems like depression or anxiety, physical problems like multiple sclerosis, uh, like uh, high blood pressure, 
um, post-surgery, cancer, hmm. on and on and on. And, and many, many of these studies show that quality of life is improved. That you're not necessarily going to heal yourself of some horrible disease, but your quality of life will improve as a result of doing yoga and meditation. Okay. Uh, it's also good for elderly people. It's actually good at any stage of life, but some populations that otherwise might find it difficult to do vigorous exercise uh, can find yoga to be extremely beneficial, both mentally and physically. Cool. Uh, well, I mean, let's talk about uh, miracles, for instance. Um, are they, like from what I hear when I, when I read a lot of skeptical material, that, that miracles are a violation to nature or they're a contradiction to nature. But in your opinion, um, as someone who, um, I guess, you know, since you study this, this kind of phenomena, you know, do you find it in contradiction to nature or in violation of nature? Well, uh, we have to make a distinction between miracle and marvel. Okay. A, mir a miracle is like supernatural. It, it is referring to the divine. Okay. So if something seems to happen in violation of what is known about the physical world, that's a miracle. Sure. And so I don't think I believe in miracles. Okay. Uh, marvels, on the other hand, are things that are possibly just as surprising as a miracle, but with the underlying assumption that this is a natural event. It's right. an unusual natural event, but it's just something that we don't understand at this point. Right, right. So that a lot of, of the hardcore skepticism makes the incorrect assumption that science is either complete or nearly complete. And so the reason for, for then saying that, well, that this, this or that phenomena is impossible is because it violates natural law or it violates the laws sure. of physics or something like that. But that's, that's silly because you don't have to read very far in the journals to realize that our concept of physical reality has changed very dramatically over the past century and continues to change. Yeah. So how, how could we be so arrogant as to assume that we actually know what violates what laws and right. what, what other laws? We don't. Right. So that that's why one of the things that I try to promote in in writing books and giving interviews and so on is tolerance. We are not as smart as we think we are. Hmm. And the the best stance that I see that a, a scientist can take is one of a combination of skepticism and tolerance for the unknown. Because in truth we actually do not know very much about ourselves and the universe. Right. And I find it annoying that every so often you'll find some article written saying that the, the human brain is the most uh, complex object in the universe, which is basically just a stupid statement. Because <laughs> we don't know anything about the rest of the universe. We, we have never met any other living creature in the universe. How do we know that the brain is, I mean, maybe their brain's the size of an entire planet. Right. We don't know that. So I see a, a, there's a lot of, of kind of inbred... Uh, intolerance and arrogance within right. science and that rubs me the wrong way right right which is why you know it is good to have like a sense of like um like a healthy skepticism but not in a sense where we have to think like we figured everything out and so a lot of these guys that i would read or listen to sometimes who they would have this uh presupposition that miracles are impossible so that, therefore right. when they hear a story oh it must be a, a fraud or you know whatever you know well, what I'm saying? And so, yeah, I like on how you make these distinctions between the word miracles and marvel and supernatural and supernormal and how you're saying kind of like we live in this this world that has these abilities. But usually when we think of divine or miracles, we think of this um, 
supernatural God that intervenes once in a while. You know, that's something that only God can do. You know right. what I'm saying? Where that, I think that's where, you know, just even for myself growing up as a, as a Christian and just seeing even like conservative Christians, you know, because there's like so many different types of uh, versions of Christians. You know, you have some that are right. like charismatic. They believe in miracles and healing and stuff. And then you have the more conservative type and the conservative ones would usually criticize the, the charismatics and say, hey, you can't do that. Only God can do it. You know, so you'll right. see these different types of, of, of even Christians fighting about these types of things. But, you know, when it comes to like mystical experiences um, or, you know, or these hallucinations that people supposedly would have, like, do you think that they reflect a, a truthful picture of reality? Do hallucinations? Or, it, or just is like, you know, people have these mystical experiences. These, they have, oh. you know, even religious or non-religious, they have these open, these open visions where they, right. you know, it's not just even in their mind's eye. Like they could see something while they're fully awake conscious mm -hmm. and you know where are those well, hallucinations in the head or, or are they a truthful picture of reality well this this is a, i would give the very similar response as they did already for a test uh, if you have one person telling you something that sounds marvelous maybe it's true but you don't know if you have two people independently telling you the same thing then it starts to get a little bit interesting sure if you have, you have 10 people telling you independently that they had visions about something well then you better start paying attention <laughs> yeah. and and so that that becomes the arbiter of truth basically it becomes right. a consensus opinion about what what do we think is actually going on here right. uh, for unfortunately for anecdotes for purely subjective impressions even if you have a hundred people about it you still actually don't know what's going on sure so as an example take the uh, the miracle at Fatima in Portugal, all right, back in the 1930s, I think, where the the three young children saw the vision of of Mary, Mary yeah. uh, and then once a month for the next year or so, they said, "Well, Mary will come back next month." And <laughs> by the time the last vision was seen by the three children, there were tens of thousands of people who were in attendance, hmm. and the vast majority of them saw miracles. They right. saw the sun fly out of the out of the sky and almost hit the earth that was their perception not everybody saw that but enough people saw it to make you wonder that they probably saw something but we don't know what it is that they saw yeah so who knows so, if it was like a truthful picture of reality but yet they saw it well it was something right so again it's the consensus opinion that makes something real or not real and and this is actually goes back to the notion of why I think science needs a new metaphysic. Because even though we, we, we make measurements, we have instruments, we believe in our instruments, and they're relatively stable and giving the same results, we always have to come back to somebody saw the measurement. Mm -hmm. we, we, the only contact that we will ever have with the, with the world is through our own awareness. And, and because we have to see the we have to experience the world through that boundary we never know the world directly mm -hmm. and that means that you're always going to have to rely on consensus opinion whether it's within science or whether in stories mm -hmm. and among other things that's why i think we need to remain very humble about our opinions and what's going on sure so i mean if we could just talk about some of these experiments that you've done can you tell us about any like precognition experiments you've done so back in the 1990s, the mid-90s, I had this idea that 
a friend of mine told me a story that gave me an idea for an experiment. So the story was that he liked to go hunting with, with his friends and they would take uh, rifles and pistols and he always took two pistols with him, one of which was a six-shot revolver, a double-action six-shot revolver. So that means you have six bullets in a chamber, you pull the trigger, the hammer goes back, the cylinder turns and then if you keep pulling the trigger, the, the hammer will hit the bullet in the next chamber. So that's the typical six-shot revolver. So on the preparation for going to this hunting trip, he was cleaning the revolver, and he always left only five bullets in it. He had the hammer on an empty chamber for safety's sake. Hmm. So there are five bullets in the, in the chamber. He took them all out. He cleaned the gun. He puts the bullets back in place, one, two, three, four. And as he picked up the fifth bullet, he got a really bad feeling. And so he decided, not knowing what that was about, to just lay it aside and not put it in. So now there's two empty chambers. So two weeks go by, they go out hunting. He had completely forgotten about all that. Uh, and then they come back from a hunting party to the lodge and they start drinking. And one thing everyone who deals with guns knows, that you should not be drinking while you have <laughs> firearms around. So an argument breaks out between two of his friends. There are lots of guns around. One of the friends picks up his gun, points it point blank at his friend's face, and starts pulling the trigger. <laughs> so, of course, he sees an, an accident about to happen, steps in front of his friend to kind of block the shot, huh. and, and the trigger is pulled all the way. The hammer goes back, and it goes click huh. rather than bang right. because that was the bullet that he took out of the gun. Wow. Oh, so, crazy. So I listened to that story and said, well, that it'd be great if we can do that in the laboratory. <laughs> yeah. Because you had like a two-week precognition that there was something wrong with that bullet. Yeah. So you can't do that in the laboratory. But what you can do is uh, simulate it. Right. So the way that the experiment works is you sit somebody down in front of a computer screen. You monitor some aspect of their physiology, like their skin conductance or heart rate or their pupil dilation. You can measure all kinds of things. And what those measures tell you is what's happening below the level of awareness. And the idea is you have the computer randomly select out of a very large pool of pictures. Some of those pictures are very emotional, like it might be a picture of a gun pointed at you, or it may be very calm, like a picture of a lamp or an ashtray or something. So nobody knows in advance what picture you're going to see, and we're recording, say, your heart rate continually. The question is, if, if this is a simulation of some bad event coming up in your future, can we detect that in your body? Mm. So we, do, we may do 40 random images in a row in an experiment with maybe 30 seconds apart between each one. Some, some of the pictures you're going to see are going to be emotional and some are going to be calm. And so the prediction is very simple, that if we are somehow getting information from the future, then your body would be slightly more agitated before you get an emotional picture and slightly calmer before you get a calm picture. So I did that experiment and it worked like amazingly well. Nice. So well, as I've seen in other experiments I do, that I didn't believe it. <laughs> that this, this has to be a mistake because this is like <laughs> too crazy good to be true. <laughs> so I ended up doing a bunch of experiments and finally got some colleagues to start replicating it. And to this day now there's about 40 replications from nice. seven or eight labs around the world and it's very clear nice. that this is a real effect. Right, right. And we've studied every possible loophole that anybody's ever come up with, and the, mm. the effect's still there. So this tells us that uh, you can take 
you listen carefully to stories that people tell you that suggest some kind of a psychic effect. Right. And you can work in the laboratory to make a simulation of that kind of effect. Then you can end up with very interesting evidence that basically says that in this one case where the guy saved his life by not putting a bullet into the gun, you don't know if that's precognition or not. Right. But you know that in principle, it might have been. Because we can see that effect in the laboratory when it's just not quite as dr a dramatic case as that. Right, right. So I guess just hearing that, you, you would probably suggest to people to kind of follow their gut sometimes? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the, real, the trick, though, is how to discriminate between fantasy right. and an actual intuitive hit. And only through experience can you, can sure. you learn that. Sure, sure. Yeah, let's move on to like psychokinesis, you know, and of course, you know, there's been examples of that even back in the day. I remember watching even Yuri Geller, you know, with the spoon bending stuff. But I remember in your book, you shared a story um, that you had that was really interesting where you where you attended a PK uh, party. Do you mind sharing that story? Because I, I found that kind of interesting. Right. So PK party refers to a bunch of people getting together in a party like atmosphere uh, with the intention of bending forks or bending spoons. Just, you know, like everybody could be Yuri Geller for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the reason for doing it in a party atmosphere is because it's well known that if you really, really try hard, it doesn't work. Mm. You, you have to simultaneously want to do something like bend a spoon or bend a fork, but without any anxiety or trying at all. Mm. So it's a paradoxical state. Sure known as effortless striving. You must strive with no effort. It's difficult to learn how to do that. So party atmosphere kind of lightens the mood, gets everybody focused on what they want to do, but in a kind of, there's a lot of laughter and commotion. Yeah. So. It's like more relaxed, yeah. So I went to a party. I, at that point, I had no reason to believe or not believe that this was real. I had friends who said that they were able to do this, but I had assumed that the bending that was taking place was occurring because people don't know their own strength and they were disassociating. And so, like if you take a, a typical spoon, you could bend it at the neck of the spoon pretty easily. Yeah. And I decided I, if I saw somebody do that, I wouldn't be very impressed. Sure. The only thing that I f would find impressive is if somebody bent the bowl of a spoon in half and a big, a big soup spoon because it's very, very difficult. Yeah. The amount of torque it requires to bend the bowl of a spoon a big spoon in particular, is far more than the average person can do. Certainly far more than I could do without some pliers and torque wrenches and stuff. So I knew a friend who was at the same party and she had claimed that she had been able to do that in the past. So I sat down close to her and was, it was just watching her and I had my own spoon and I was very intently on her and not paying too much attention to what I was doing. <laughs> so I hear somebody behind me say, uh, oh, look what you've done. So I looked around to see if somebody else had done something. And they said, no, you, <laughs> me. I had bent the bowl about, about a quarter of the way across. And That's I was funny. totally unconscious of that. But yeah. I kind of looked at it, dumbfounded, and then just took my forefinger of my thumb and squished it. And it yeah. felt squishy like taffy. I squished it over, and it completely folded over, immediately hardened up. And I had the presence of mind to look at my fingers to see if I had used force to feel the temperature. I had not used force, and it was cold. Hmm. And it's it hardened up and it stayed that way, and that's where it is today. Right, right. So 
because of that event, I, I now have uh, reason to believe that some of the other stories that my friends have told me about what they were able to do was probably correct. Right, right. And there's certainly, there's a gazillion ways of doing this, of faking it, but I have, have yet to see a conjuring-type magician bend the bowl of a spoon in the way that I've Yeah. So do you think a lot of it has to do also with just, like, the your environment or the people around you? Like, for example... So I did grow up in like the charismatic scene where we would have, you know, we would call them prophets and stuff. You know, this is just the language we use in our in the, in the Christian subculture. But like I would meet people who would know things. They would know people's names, social security numbers, like crazy stuff like that, honestly. And it's hard for people to believe. But I've, I've actually seen that myself, you know, mm-hmm. and there were times where I would be around some of these people and then I would get stuff that would pop up into my mind. You know, and that I would share with people and be like, how did you know that? And and then I would notice that a lot of those times where it would be pretty right on was when I was within these types of communities that were very much into this stuff. You know, so just yeah. hearing about your party, I'm wondering if it's kind of like that, that con- you know, the, I guess you would call the consciousness field effects. I don't know if that would be the same term to use, but th- there's just that environment of, of like a collective group of people believing the same thing. So in a sense, the energy kind of lets it flow better. Would yes. you say? Um, yeah, I, I think that's correct. Yeah, so you know that's why I'm not a, a, a skeptic. I'm, I'm like you. I'm skeptical of certain people who you know they could be fakes and frauds and stuff. But I I've seen it done. I've had my own personal experiences and stuff. And and you know, but one of the things that I've I've been hearing a lot, you know, just through my readings and and even in your book, you talked about consciousness field effects, and then you talked mm-hmm. about how, you know, so I mean, is it possible that that practitioners who are just meditating? on peace and on violence, can it literally lower crime and, and violence in certain areas? Yeah, I think it does. And has yeah. there been, like, you know, research done on that and experiments? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the most experiments on looking at uh, collective, collective mind effects, there's two major ways of doing those experiments. One is from the Transcendental Meditation Movement, uh, which for years was doing studies seeing the effect of meditators on indices of crime in right. an area. Uh, so this, some of the studies are less well-controlled than others, but the best controlled studies there, have, which have been published in the top uh, sociology journals, they're done quite well, and they show pretty clearly that it made a difference if you have people meditating in a vicinity. Hmm. So you even find that in, in less well-controlled circumstances where... In San Francisco, for example, there's a um, there's a program called Quiet Time in school. And they, they selected the worst inner city schools that that uh, in the city, uh, mostly lower income kids, and these were very wild and not very safe schools. And they instituted this thing where for 15 minutes in the morning and in the afternoon, everyone, including the staff and the teachers, would simply meditate. For 15 minutes yeah so these schools went from the worst to among the best so that's good but what is more interesting is that the amount of crime in the community around the school also dramatically dropped Wow and those so those were people not meditating they just happened to be in the vicinity of people who every single day school day anyway would be meditating twice and there's something then that seems to radiate out yeah so interestingly, 
the, it, within the, the yogic tradition, this is known as one of the cities. One wow. of the special powers huh. is, uh, is roughly translated as radiating goodness. Yeah. So how far do you think it can radiate, you know, like these fields, you know, of, like as you meditate, you know, like how far has anyone ever measured the reach of it all? I don't think I know of anybody who's actually been able to measure with any accuracy how far sure. these effects go. Most of the time, it's assumed that they're local. Sure. That, you know, the effect is like one over R squared or something like right. that. Right. Uh, but if it is actually an effect of consciousness itself, and if it's correct that uh, consciousness is not in space-time right. or, or prior to space-time, then in, from that perspective, there would be no distance yeah. involved no at limits. all. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, you know, um, let me almost end with this quote that I, I read in your book. It said, there are many books on how to win friends and influence people, but surprisingly few on how to make enemies and alienate people. Here is a suggestion to fill the gap. Walk into a group of scientists and announce that you believe in parapsychology. And that's by Robert Walsh. So my question is, you know, how has the scientific community accepted you and your work? It depends on whether you're asking in public or in private. Either. <laughs> well, it makes a big difference because of the taboo that I mentioned early on. Mm. Uh, in private, many, many, many scientists, they clearly the majority it. of scientists, are very interested in this, right. and I get contacted all the time by people who want to talk about it. Mm. In public, it is not safe for an academic, especially, to admit that they're interested in this topic. Yeah. It's not safe for their career. Yeah. It's not safe for their job. They, they simply cannot do it. So we're, we live in this strange schizophrenic environment where privately I know that people all the way up to the National Academy of Sciences in the United States, they're very interested in this. Hmm. And in some cases, I know people in the National Academy who have done experiments and they work, but they will not talk about it in public. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised, you know, in that sense. I mean, so... I mean, even though in private people are embracing these things, but where do you see science heading concerning it, embracing it like publicly in the future? Well, I, I think because we're dealing with real, pheno real phenomena here, that eventually science catches up. Yeah. Sometimes it takes decades, sometimes it takes centuries for, yeah. for science to, to move along. Uh, I think I've noticed a trend, especially on younger scientists, meaning around 30 or younger, uh, especially because of the quantum mechanics is still pretty strange, but more and more younger scientists of all stripes are beginning to learn more and more about it. And so the notion that we live in a classical universe, that it's bound by classical concepts, that's beginning to break down. Yeah. And you see that in journal articles looking at things like uh, quantum cognition. So it's taking quantum principles and applying it to uh, this cognitive psychology. It turns out that there's some things in cognitive psychology that are very difficult to explain in classical terms, but can be explained if you use quantum principles. And you see this now more and more in, in chemistry and biology and so on. There's, it's, it's simply a new generation of people who have grown up with these concepts and don't find them so impossible anymore. Well, that is going to continue because quantum mechanics is slowly penetrating the, the scientific mind and the public mind as well. And that is very important because it changes the way that people will think about these phenomena. That's why I wrote the book Entangled Minds. That if you, if you come at, this, at these phenomena from a skeptical perspective 
and you imagine that the world is the way that your senses tell you, the everyday classical world, then these phenomena don't fit at all. I mean, that's why traditionally they were considered supernatural. Yeah. It's divine, because it seems like it's outside of the natural world. But because our concepts of the natural world have significantly changed, and now we have, we know that there are non-local connections that transcend space and time. We know that there's all kinds of strange quanta phenomena, like underneath what appears to be solid matter, there isn't any. There's just information. Right. These concepts, as they slowly penetrate the academic world, will make it more and more plausible that there should be occasionally strange kinds of connections between people and between people. And so at some point in the future, maybe it's five years, maybe it's 50 years, I don't know. At some point in the future, you'll have entire generations growing up with, with are very comfortable with these ideas, in which case parapsychological phenomena will no longer be considered spooky. Mm. They'll be considered just another part of the natural world. Right, right. So what, what's next for you now? Are you, are you working on any book at the moment? or? I've, I've just uh, gotten the, the green light for a new book I'm writing uh, that will be actually be starting in a couple of days. Oh, cool. Uh, and it's, it will do for magic, meaning traditional magic, not conjuring, but real magic uh, for what I did for yoga. Nice. So oh, okay. a lot of people have no idea what tr traditional real magic is about. And I'm going to review that and then look at it from a scientific perspective to say what aspects of this, these ancient practices have any credibility at all. Uh, and so I'll go through that. And what I'll do a little bit differently in the end of this book than, than I did in Supernormal is uh, I'll devote maybe a third of the book to how to do it, how to be a, a real magician and spend a fair amount of time saying why you probably don't want to do that. Okay. Every power comes yeah. with a certain responsibility. So sure, that sounds like Spider Man. Yeah, that's cool. You know, so how how can my listeners keep in touch with you? What's your website? Well, DeanRaden.com okay. is my website, but I work at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is either ions.org or noetic.org. Okay, noetic.org, and then you have a Facebook page, like a fan page thing. I have a fan page, and I okay. have a personal page, and okay. a Twitter account, all that stuff. Awesome, awesome. So be sure to check out Dean Radin's books, The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, and Supernormal on Amazon.com. And look out for his new book that's going to be on magic. So that's pretty dope. So if you'd mm -hmm. like to support this show financially and help keep it going, uh, that would really mean a lot. You can go to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Joshua Tongle. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Write a review and rate it on iTunes. It only takes like two minutes, guys, because it'll help more people discover the show. And of course, please share this podcast with your friends. And so, Dean, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing all your insights. It's, it's pretty cool stuff, man. It was such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Awesome. So, alrighty, guys, once again, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you guys on the flip side. I'm out. Peace. Peace.